You are listening to Post Studio Visit, a podcast from the Org Gallery Vancouver. I'm Jonah Gray. Every episode, I bring you conversations with artists, curators, and writers recorded in the place where they work. Today, I meet up with Amy Kazimierczyk and Cheyenne Turians after hours at the Audain Gallery at SFU Woodwards. These two co-curated the group exhibition The Fraud That Goes Under the Name of Love, which is currently on show there. In what follows, we discuss the show's curatorial framework, which looks askance at the notion of a labor of love. It is an expansive and ambitious project with 11 contributing artists and writers, including Billy Ray Belcourt, Hannah Black, Rebecca Brewer, Anne Boyer, Maggie Grote, Joanna Hedva, Hannah Herr, Dylan Mira, Skeena Reese, Mika Rottenberg, and Rochelle Sawatsky. Kazimierczuk is the curator of SFU Audain Gallery. She has also developed programs for Vivo Media Arts Centre, the Signal and Noise Media Arts Festival, Vancouver Queer Film Festival, and Dim Cinema at the Cinematheque. Turians is an independent curator and writer who has a bachelor's degree in philosophy from UBC and is currently pursuing a master's in visual studies at the University of Toronto. She has curated art and discursive projects at institutions such as the Art Gallery of Windsor, Art Metropole, and Vivo, among others. Both Kazimierczyk and Turians contributed to the Woodland School Symposium curated by Duane Linklater at Orr Gallery and co-presented with SFU Galleries. And we'll have texts in the forthcoming anthology through UBC Press. Once we were comfortably seated amongst the works in the show, we cracked a bottle of white wine and I asked them to tell me more about this latest project. Well, for the past couple of weeks, I have been in Vancouver from my home in Toronto, working with Amy Kazmierczuk on installing and opening an exhibition at the Audain Gallery at uh, SFU Woodwards, entitled The Fraud That Goes Under the Name of Love. Amy is here too. You've been working on that. I've been working on that as well. Tell us a little bit about the show. How did, I mean, first of all, maybe how did you guys come to be working together? Well, Amy and I have been collaborators for a long time now, probably close to 10 years. I used to live in Vancouver, and at that time I was the programs manager and curator at Cineworks, and Amy Lynn was directing a series that was under the Pacific Cinematheque called Dim Cinema. And amongst our positions at these two media-based projects or organizations, we, we often work together. And out of that formal relationship, we developed a friendship. And we have been talking to each other and working together, yeah, for almost 10 years now. And this project at the Audain Gallery is uh, on the invitation of Amy to me to work with her through her position as the curator at the Audain Gallery and the show has been co-curated by both of us. Um, what was the occasion? I remember at a, an, another time maybe we were talking, Amy, and you said that there was some impulse, maybe an institutional impulse behind the show. Is that true or is it? Um, Possibly. I think that we, Melanie O'Brien and I, had a conversation in the fall about um, 
Well, I think we have an ongoing conversation about looking at what are the patterns and what are the reoccurring themes and ideas and relations between the programming at SFU galleries. And part of um, when we were doing some future planning in the fall of 2015, we were, we were looking at a couple of different programs that we were working on that seemed to all be about nurturing um, or convening conversations. So we were looking at the Woodland School Critical Reader um, publication that we are co-publishing with the Aura Gallery and that that was going to bring a group of people together to convene a conversation. You both wrote for that too. That myself and Cheyenne both wrote. Um, we were also talking about um, a series that had just been initiated called Intertextual which was a kind of, I don't know what I want to say, but um, not a coalition per se, but let's say a, a partnership between numerous contemporary art galleries in Vancouver to come together and draw a dialogue between their programming over the year of 2016. Um, and the way that that was going to be sort of materially formed was through doing a reading group within each institution's exhibition once um, so that these reading series would happen monthly over a 10-week period that would culminate together in some type of a symposium in the fall of 2016. And there's another person, Tara Hogue, that was working on that series. And then we were looking at some of the themes in our programming around um, uh, land relations and land-based politics and thinking about... Um, the responsibility of institutions to the uh, territories that they sit on and, and the histories of the, the social and material land that they are a part of. Um, and somehow some combination of all of those factors came into thinking, well, let's expand this invitation to a conversation to some of these key people. And so Tara Hogue was um, invited to curate an exhibition on at the SFU Gallery, and at the same time we extended an invitation to Cheyenne to curate at the Audane Gallery. So those two exhibitions are up at the same time. And Tara's exhibition is called Unsettled Sites, um, and it's an exhibition of Tanya Willard and Wanda Nanabush and um, Marion Penner Bancroft, and then Cheyenne and I's, um, the fraud that goes under the name of love is up. So we're sort of hoping it's not super explicit in terms of a kind of curatorial intention, like it's not outlined in the framing of these two exhibitions, but that as numerous programs that are happening over the, at the SFU galleries over the year, that they these kind of become enfolded um, into those conversations. So that was kind of maybe institutionally what the premise behind it was. And I think that between Cheyenne and I, when we um, started talking about this exhibition, actually we started by, we were meeting in Montreal to do a um, No Reading After the Internet program as part of a exhibition at the um, Ellen... Leonard and B. Leonard and Ellen. Leonard and B. Ellen, yeah. Yeah, art gallery at Concordia University that was part of an exhibition there called... Reading Exercises. Reading Exercises, and you know, No Reading After the Internet is one of the programs that Shine and I have done together for about eight, eight or ten years, I suppose, since its iteration as a previous program called Thought on Film. And so we said, okay, when we meet together in Montreal and we get to live together for a week, we're going to come with a list of what we love the most. Like, what are the artworks and the artist practices that we're most in love with? And so some notion of this idea of being compelled or being in love with um, the work that you want to present 
I think was maybe started something in the conversation about what this show would be um, and that probably led to something a more critical conversation about what exactly that means to love um, and uh, and what it means to work and what it means <laughs> to working together uh, in part of the framing of the fraud that goes under the name of love there's this this concern with how the conditions and ethics of the laboring of love or of the labors of love that make up the work that we do in life are absorbed in the body and enfolded into life. And so I think it is important to acknowledge that this there's a lot of politics that the phrase labor of love conceals. Uh, it points to perhaps joy the joy of the work that you're doing, but it conceals the the laboring of it, or it conceals the fact that that laboring is often not remunerated or acknowledged in some sort of way. Uh, and I think that in the coming together of our making of this exhibition, those politics have played out between us as co-curators, like to say that I've really relied on Amy in some very fundamental ways to make this exhibition happen, uh, and I hope that I've been able to provide her with support in some way, and that it has been really incredible to have this opportunity to articulate the continuation of a conversation that has been happening between us for so long now, but that it is complicated and political in all of the ways that any of these things that we do are. I think that there's like, you know, we've, we haven't lived in the same city for about six years. And so, you know, we haven't been directly working together on anything, but we write letters and we Skype and write emails. And so there's always this, you know, in that there's always a level, certain level of complaining that happens or a certain, <laughs> there's a, a certain level of confession that happens in that type of relationship. But then there's also a, a kind of, yeah, an asking for help, but also, um, uh, it's interesting what gets shared in a long-distance relationship because it can't be everything. And one of, the, one of the conversations that I feel like we've had for a long time is around what, what the work of curating actually is. And now Cheyenne's gone and broken our uh, bond by you know getting a degree in curatorial studies because for a long time neither of us had one and we were we were doing it yeah it's a blood pact yeah, yeah. and she's you know broken that but that's okay um, but that we both maybe came at the practice from having certain skill sets or certain convictions or certain politics or certain desires that came from outside of a particular formalized notion of what that work is. And so I think we've a large part of our conversation have, has been a type of reflection and interrogation of really what it means to do this work. And um, it's, I feel like maybe very softly over a long period of time, lately I think there's been a lot of um, assumptions, a lot of kind of public and pop culture commentary around the notion of curating as simply being 
just exercising one's choice over something or exercising one's taste taste as if what curators do is just sit around and choose things all day with a magic wand and somehow that just manifests into something and i i think that this is um you know like for example what what's david what is the guy who wrote curationism david balzer david balzer's book curationism is maybe a yeah a an example of this maybe type of perception or assumption but i think that a lot of our conversation about is like it what really is the work of of the role and i think um the the choice if you can call it a choice i don't think that is what's happening but let's say you've made a choice you've made a decision that is like 0.2 seconds of the entire process that unravels and i'm more interested in thinking about the role or of our role in the work that we do in terms of all the other forms of labor that it takes to do the work and you know it's everything from you know um trying to negotiate very complex economic structures within institutions to support artists who can't finish their work because they have children and they can't figure out how to deal with the stress and the anxiety of you know uh not being able to afford childcare so that they can like finish something and then you're trying to like problem solve some massive you know economic barrier at you know all hours of the night or sometimes it can be um picking up a lot of garbage picking up getting <laughs> those mr clean things that take the scuffs off the wall you can be spending a lot of time on the floor cleaning um Goo it gone. can be a lot of counseling it can just be a lot of spending very intimate time with people trying to sort through um any number of like personal or political or material issues that they're having between their sense of themselves as an artist and the world around them or their family politics or their relationships you know it can look like having to barter between different forms of economies to get certain things made it can be sometimes making that yourself because you know you're within an institutional apparatus that refuses to pay for certain things it's also about developing the agility to move between excel spreadsheets and the philosophical work of writing didactic panels yeah or it can be like realizing that there's you know a lot of people who are looking for work to um you know be able to support their artistic practices and how do you sort of like you know schematize a way that you can hire x number of people within an installation to like move labor around or i mean it can look it looks like a lot of it's a lot of things and i think that it's it's even more things than that it's such a long list and i i i think that there's something about the show although that's not what the show's about that what we wanted to do was spend a lot of time interrogating what it is that we're really doing when we're doing the work that we're doing um and what is its impact and what of its what what's its affects and the way that that then resonates in our bodies and in our social relations and then informs how we then return to or approach the work so in these kind of cyclical fashions and I want to situate that in relation to some of the stuff in the gallery where we're sitting right now um you mentioned about writing didactic panels and that seems like an interesting um problem or question that comes up with this show is that 
their works that are kind of in themselves like they're not didactic panels but there's like there's text there's that's a lot applied of text. to the wall of, in the form of vinyl and they're actually really extensive um, didactic panels or kind of like writing about each individual artwork um, maybe this is kind of like curatorial inside baseball question but it's like I'm, I'm curious about that and, so, and also the didactic panels are all on the ends of the walls. <laughs> well, there was a strategic decision to remove the didactic panels from the proximity of the work that they described so that people would hopefully spend time looking at the work. I know myself, when I go into a museum primarily, and there are didactic panels that are right alongside the work that I'm looking at, I spend more time reading the didactic panel than I do looking at the work, and I hate that about myself. And so this is an attempt to physically sort of obstruct that process. Uh, and I realize that there's... Uh, the didactic panels here actually ask quite a lot from the reader in being able to situate them in relationship to the artwork they're describing, but I think that that uh, physical distance, that almost like temporal distance, hopefully emphasizes an engagement with the work itself. The didactic panels in the way that we have written them stake a claim for the works through the lens of the framing of the exhibition. They're not written by the artists. They're not artist statements. They are our interpretation of the work as as a member of this exhibition. Uh, there's also no professional accolade. I mean, there's no professional acknowledgement in the didactics in a way of, you know, articulating the artist as an autonomous subject, um, even outside of the show, which I think is uh, also a, a decision. You mean in terms of listing other exhibitions that they've been in? Well, yeah, I think there's a, you, you, know, you see didactics in different or, ways, whether it's biographical information or whether it's like, yeah, an artist-intended uh, statement about the work. And I think that we... Um, we uh, I don't love didactics when I go into galleries myself. I was racking my mind to remember about other shows here. Yeah, so we started doing them at SFU with the first big group show that Melanie O'Brien and I curated together called Geometry of Knowing. And it's funny, I've cut, they've kind of grown on me in a funny way. Or in, no, that's not the right word, in an unpredictable way. Where I think you should everyone should have the opportunity to look at an artwork on its own terms without any um, intervention or any sort of introduction to how one should look at it. However, I think that not everybody enters the gallery with the same comfort with taking that time and taking maybe the risk to just be with something. And for some people, having a bit of a, you know, a, a sense of support or a sense of being offered some direction in terms of maybe what they're looking at or how how to think about what they're looking at or how maybe things in a room go together. I don't think it's, I think it's, I've come to think of it as an act of generosity and that it, it, it's there for people to look at if they want to or desire to, but in fact they don't have to. And I think what we tried to do in this show in terms of putting them on the sides of these walls and grouping them together away from the work, um, that it's not entirely obvious which panel is for which work, but that it's also, but it's there if you want to, if you need something to kind of, you know, push you along and I think that um, 
the intention between them is to f- to write them from the perspective of why the works are in the show, and I think that they give it's very subtle, but they do offer us opportunities to maybe bring some references um, and some citations um, and some ideas that we wanted to be in the show that didn't make it into the actual installation of works themselves, but are sort of circling between the works. And I think that the second thing that we've added to the show that helps with that is the bibliography, which is basically a list of curatorial tech, a list of texts that Cheyenne and I have been reading that have been a significant part of our own process, as well as asking each of the artists to suggest one text that is significant. Um, I think the way we, we put the invitation to them was, can you offer the suggestion of a text that somehow circulates between your own practice and the dialogue of your work in this exhibition? Um, and so somehow together those are also I feel like oblique and um, invisible didactic panels this history or this um, list of these books that also sit alongside the work but are not present so somehow they're working in layers or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure who will take the initiative or have the interest to go and read the text that Amy and I or the artists have suggested in the bibliography but uh it somehow felt important to point to our research process in this. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that there's not an essay that accompanies this exhibition. This is actually the first time I've ever written didactic panels for a show in my entire career. And I feel like it is important for curators to stake a claim for what they think is happening in an exhibition. Not that that claim becomes what the exhibition is about, but that they are invested in what the works do amongst themselves. And so this was, through the bibliography and through the didactic panels was how Amy and I yeah, staked a claim for what 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 the fraud is in each of these works, let's say. Although I think also the question of what is the fraud is still alive for us, even though this exhibition is up and living its own life. I think that there are many different ways to answer that question. And hopefully that's some of what what will happen when people come in and look at the show and spend time with it. I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to ask you questions, Jonah, but you were mentioning coming here to see the exhibition and talking to one of the volunteers that were working at the gallery who is an SFU student studying economics who had a lot of opinions about what was going on here. And I, you know, I wish that there was some way to recuperate all of those conversations, you know, back into the sort of like curatorial mind that is the show itself. But uh, maybe, I don't know, what was that like for you encountering uh, somebody in the gallery who had a lot to say about the show that was not one of the curators? Yeah, well, I think I think what I like to put it is that um, this guy just kind of like spontaneously offered up, you know, to to show me around the show, and um, he's like, "Oh, were you an art lover?" And I was like, "Yeah, I guess in a manner of speaking, yeah, I am." Um, so it was nice because we just talked about the relationships between some of the different artworks and that kind of thing, and he, you know, he pointed out different in so in um, Rebecca Brewer's painting, he's like, "Oh, and there's snails in this one," and. Anyways, um, no, but it was nice <coughs> to have. I mean, it's, I guess it was kind of like another layer of didactic panel, something <laughs> like that. But, that was, but um, 
yeah, I'm not. I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other about didactic panels because I think that um, I definitely reject the criticism of them that they overdetermine an artwork or like explain an artwork because I think that you know any artwork that is you know worth anything should be able to withstand different interpretations and certainly I guess one of the things that got me thinking about too though and maybe in his maybe in our kind of interaction it made me think about that especially between like looking at the didactic panels and looking at the, um, the images and some of the pieces on the wall which are being presented almost as artworks unto themselves but that are maybe like poetry or kind of like excerpts from texts I'm curious about that um, the impetus behind that of of combining really different sort of kind of like formally different um, approaches, you know. Obviously, you're thinking and you kind of in those dialectic panels, you guys get a little bit at how you're seeing them working together. But I'm just curious about what what. I like that. Cheyenne's idea of the maybe let's stop talking about them as like didactic panels, but they're in fact the curatorial essay expanded in the space of the gallery as opposed to, to sitting sort of parallel to it. And I think that, I mean, the way I, when we were sort of imagining how the show would go up physically, I kept thinking about them as these like concentric circles in which each circle, mini circle, had a video and a set of paintings and a text. Maybe and, just to back up, I just want to say one okay, thing, which is that I was surprised, and I think that Amy was surprised also, that we ended up with a distribution of works materially that look the way that they look. Like, that there's so much text, that there's so much painting, that there's these videos. There's really, like Amy was about to say, there's sort of three zones. Well, there's a couple of zones. There's three zones, though, where there is a patterning of the presentation of the work. And in these zones, there's a set of paintings, a video, and a text piece. There's three of these zones in the gallery. Uh, and that was sort of a way of organizing what I felt was like a kind of surprising distribution of materials. Why is there so much poetry? Why is there so much painting? And I don't, I have some versioning ideas about why there's poetry and painting in this way, but uh, I don't know. I was taken aback. It wasn't like we had a, an agenda to go and collect paintings and poetry no, and videos. No, I think, it, I mean, when we put these artists on the table, we were like, this is what we love. And then we had to sort of argue for them in a way. You know, we kind of went like, oh, we have a lot of, we have this many videos and this many paintings, and these are the writers we want to work with. And they were sort of about the same number, really, in the end. And that was something that came about probably, well, that's a whole other discussion about maybe why we were drawn in those directions. But then once we saw that there was this patterning that emerged, and we thought about what if we break them up into a conversation between them, and what I see between them is that there's these different um, ap approaches to language um, that each of them represent and various forms of um, po poetic or allegorical or figurative language between the painting and the video and the text works and that we also choose to put these in the show as works, even though none of these writers that were writing these works had ever intended them to be in an art gallery per se. They were all open to it and in some cases wrote a piece for the gallery specifically. But that 
it was like a kind of a leveling, not leveling as in an equality, but in terms of a, let's think about the artwork as language or as a kind of mediation of an experience. And that I think that if you're in any one of these little like concentric circles, you have this way in which the paintings, the video works and the text works are offering you a different language medium that are speaking that then become in a conversation together and that where and you know the paintings themselves can feel quite silent when you then read the text that's in the kind of general area or you listen to the dialogue or some of the text or the music that emerges in the videos that then spills out into how you're then looking at the paintings and I think that there's or there's a particularly strong sense of like a force or an image in a color a mark something in a painting that then that sense of that mark and maybe what is the force behind that mark can then also influence a particular emphasis in punctuation in the text or a particular um, you know um, uh, syntax in a video whether it's visual or audio and so I think it was it was an experiment with seeing if that could speak yeah, I mean, together. there are philosophical affinities, though, in each of these sections or each of the concentric circles. So amongst Johanna Hedva, Mika Rottenberg, and Rebecca Brewer, they share this concern for the metaphysical or the mythological. And amongst Billy Ray Belcourt and Hannah Herr and Dylan Mira, they have uh, a concern with the breakdown of the body. And Rochelle Sawatsky and... Hannah Black's video and Ann Boyer's text piece all share a concern with sort of the limits of identification or uh, a question of where what happens when identity begins to break down in these ways. Um, but also to say that the exhibition has bookends. So here where we are at the maybe front of the gallery, which is also the back of the gallery because of the way the doors work, we have these beautiful curtain pieces and a sort of sculptural assemblage by Maggie Grote and a text piece by Hannah Black. And then at the back slash front of the gallery, in the opposite place of where we are now, there's Skeena Reese's moss bag that stands as a work unto itself, but also as a remnant of a performance that she did at the opening with Janine Najuli. So there's, I mean, I think it's funny also to think of it as a bookend, given the Preponder or no predominance of text within the show. There's something, but they so. are there are different they are a different material. Yeah, um, they take up different material space in the gallery than the other works do. Yeah. they're unique and they happen to be at the entrance and at the end. Yeah, ish, ish. <laughs> I think that someone asked something when we, Sharon and I did a curatorial tour of the exhibition, and there seemed to be a real interest amongst one person in particular in the audience around... Amongst that one person? Huh? <laughs> What's I like that? the way that you phrased that. Amongst one person. Yeah. In particular, though I say amongst because it could have been shared by other people that shared it silently. Yes. Um, to want to know what... This, the personal story was they really wanted to know you know 
what is this artist? What is their struggling with? What is their labor? What is their identity? What is the like? What is the material activism that they're doing to conquer that within this um, uh, I, this kind of um, the setup we have of challenging this notion of the labor of love? And I thought, well, just because I'm bringing, I'm going back to the beginning when Shine was talking about concealment, and I and I think. There is a desire in all of these works, whether it's a sculptor or a painter or a video or in the text, there's a desire for the concealment of that specificity. It is sort of necessarily oblique in a particular way. And I think that the fact that you look at these paintings and you couldn't necessarily say, well, what is, what is this person's critical perspective on labor or care work or um, uh, healing through illness or, or challenging love or social activism? And you're like, it's not like, what is it? It's not there. It's not represented in there. It's hit, you know, all it is is some colors like splotched on a canvas. And I think that this idea of the concealment of this, like Shine was talking about, this concealment of the work that is in the, the, this um, aphorism, or I don't know what you would call it, but of a labor of love, is that, that the representation or the, the attempt to try to um, talk about this type of concealment or to find language to express it or to try to make it material is also incredibly opaque and it's it's you know, it's it's it can't be any clearer than the difficulty with how we experience this in our lives and i i like that about the works we chose that you are not given the answer you are not the, the reason why these artists are in the show is not so obvious and I think that that is a type of a choice that parallels the particular difficulty of that which is being attempted to be talked about in the first place. I mean, is that, I th- hold on, is that about, you mean, their particular, like, subjectivity that, you mean that would lead them to be chosen? Like, when you say that it's not clear why they're, why... Oh, not not necessarily subjectivity as in their own personal identity, but what what the work itself, or what's in the work itself, or what is propelling the work, why the works are in the show, which sometimes are attached to someone's subjectivity, sometimes not, depending on what the work is. I think that it's important to point back to where the title of the exhibition comes from. So Amy and I are quoting Anne Boyer, who's one of the artists that's in the exhibition, we're quoting a poem of hers that is titled The Fraud That Goes Under the Name of Love. But Anne is quoting Silvia Federici, who is an Italian feminist from the 1970s. And Silvia Federici first enunciated this phrase in regards to uh, wages for housework, which was a campaign that was happening that she was a part of that was demanding pay for the work that women did in the home that was cooking meals or having sex with their husbands or taking care of the kids or cleaning the house or what have you. She was, she and uh, the other people that were a part of it uh, wanted it to be reframed as labor in the same way that making shoes or working at a bank or teaching at a university are labor. And I think that 
the fraud that goes under the name of love, that the fraud points to the fact that capital hides work or something, or the capital needs to obscure work in some way. So during our curatorial tour, we were talking about how wages for housework was not about getting paid for this work necessarily, but about shifting uh, shifting a frame of understanding that maybe acknowledge the fact that capital does not compensate these kinds of labor. So being a mother, being an activist, whatever, these labors of love. It doesn't compensate these labors of love because capital, being an artist, (laughs) because capital needs to, needs a surplus. That this is where that surplus is extracted or produced or something. Um, And I'm just thinking about this now explicitly, but I think that there's something about the fact that these artists do not explicitly enunciate the politics of their work and the work itself that points to how capital functions through this process of concealment. If that makes any sense. Well, I just, I think there's, I'm just going to make, I don't know if it's like, I'm not trying to, I'm not disputing what you said, but the the way that I would articulate it is that um, the economy of capital needs free labor or it needs invisible labor to be able to create surplus because if it was paying for all labor equally um, it would be at odds with its capacity to 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 grow at the rate in which it desires and so there's there's a necessity therefore for a huge amount of work which is often done by women but um, and in the home to to be unacknowledged as work um, but what she also articulates on the second hand was that we would be in a very, very compromised situation socially if we were to literally wage all acts of love. If we were to wage the care of our children or our family members or elders, if we were to wage what it took to emotionally care for our partners or the people that we're close to or in our friendship circles, that that would have though it may reconcile a certain discrepancy socially by feeling like your labor was acknowledged equally as um, somebody else's and that the economic autonomy that you had through that recognition would allow you to potentially make different decisions than you would make without I think that's one of the things that it rests on is that what are the decisions that people are making when they don't have economic autonomy? And what are, how are things valued? And how exactly. and how are they valued? But she's but uh, but separately, if everything ways. is being valued on economic terms, we run into potentially graver problems in terms of our understanding of why we do what we do, what our intentions are, or what it what really it, that even possibly it gives in to these structures. Of Maybe capital. even just to acknowledge that there are socio political conditions that go into how different forms of labor are valued or not valued. To insist that it is pol- a political distribution amongst us, that it is not just the way things are. <laughs> that the way things are is in fact totally encoded with the politics of our time and place. Uh, 
But I think that the desire to go back to this thing about what you said is that do they want to know about a person's subjectivity? And I think that there is a desire to know about an artist's subjectivity and the position that they're coming from in terms of understanding how class or race or gender or age fit into how the position and the particularities of how one might um, be affected by these conditions and that I think those specificities are actually super important to not keep this to not allow this conversation to just get a little bit too vague and woo woo y but the (laughs) difficulty so I think that in in moments where people have wanted to know like who are these artists or like who made this work and like where do they live and like what's the conditions of their life that that's I think that that's a super honest and that's a that's a real question in terms to wanting to ask like where is their work being positioned from or like who are they in dialogue with or or what are the particular conditions that their um their life is being um directed and pressured by those are super important and yet i think that in the way that we've tried to articulate who these artists are and their backgrounds and what those subjectivities are we've been maybe a little bit equally opaque Um, and I don't if there's one question well there's no there's 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 many many questions that one is critical about what one does but I would I have a criticism about that in what we've done about deciding to be maybe a little bit more abstract or opaque about or concealing or about choosing works that, that aren't maybe you as direct more opaque than you now I th- think that you should have been I think we should I I wonder if to do the 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 intention of the show justice if there or if there could if this show could have been a, a completely different collection of works that were maybe like more direct or more exposing of um, more visible of really who people are and what it really is that they're contending with I don't know but I don't know I this is this is like I have a I it's a question I that I tussle with. I think that what happens within the context of this exhibition optimistically when it's at its best is the politics function as method and not content. Or I mean the politics are there as content as well, but that there are serious political positionings that you and I have taken through our curatorial process that manifest as this exhibition. And maybe it's because in a more general sense, I get really frustrated with exhibitions that take, I don't know, this sounds like so absurd, but exhibitions that take politics as the thing that they are about. Or perhaps it's just a general frustration that I have because I am, you know, settler and indigenous and I feel like oftentimes people will ask me to do things because I fulfill a certain uh, political prerogative that they have in the things that they want to do. And I fucking hate it. I can't stand it when I, and it's so obvious when I'm being asked to do things because people think that I can perform something for them uh, and I am not alone in this everybody I know that is I know lots of people 
that feel a similar sort of instrumentalization of their difference in this particular art world that we live in, which is, you know, funded through the Canada Council, which has strategic priorities, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I can't stand that kind of programming. I don't want to make exhibitions like that, but I am totally committed to a lot of the politics that inform those strategic priorities, which is like, I don't think that it is appropriate to have exhibitions that are composed only of men or only of white people. And so, or, I mean, just to name two really obvious ways that those politics play out. Uh, so, I don't know. But you're nuancing that <laughs> taking a slightly different kind of... Well, I just mean, what does it mean when you look at the work and think about the work and don't just let yourself curate based on boxes that people check for you in these other sort of socio-political ways. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe to just expand upon that, I think that maybe part of what we tried to do was say, if this is what we're going to look at is, you know, this critique of what a labor of love is or how one works or how one is acknowledged for their work let's try to also do it in literally how we work mm -hmm. and how we um listen to what a work an artwork is how we engage with the artists who are you know making that work how we think about you know what the space um who the people are that will be coming to the show, who are the people that are going to physically put their labor into making the show happen, and how they're going to be acknowledged and um, cared for. And I think that that's invisible for the most part. It's one of those forms of invisible labor in a show, but that, um, that maybe by creating a framework by which we were talking and thinking about it, it actually challenged us to actually to, to pay quite close attention to it in the process. Um, not perfectly, but, but, uh, but, but even drawing attention to the parts where you fail or you feel like you failed, then you become really aware of it too. And, uh, and that's its own part of the curatorial essay. Thanks for tuning in. As always, if you have any artists you'd like me to interview or questions you'd like me to ask, don't hesitate to get a hold of me on Twitter. I'm at Jonah underscore Gray, that's G-R-A-Y, or at the Org Gallery, which is at Org Gallery, or my email discursive at orgallery.org. Just wanted to give a quick shout-out to, as you may have noticed, we have a new theme song on the podcast. Thank you very much for this to Ian Wyatt.